0: Some of you will probably be absolutely sick to death of hearing about lighthouse. So me and Katie work together in Leeds, um, and Katie is a great speaker and amazing on all this stuff. And so um, it's going to be really good stuff, mm-hmm. um, and it should be really interesting delving into some really tough stuff as well. Actually, this isn't something that is um, particularly joyful, but actually. It is part of life, and so um, it's good to explore it. So mm. Shall I pray for you? Yeah, please do. Yeah, Jesus, we thank you so much for Katie. I thank you for the amazing and huge heart that you've given her for people on the edge. And Jesus, we pray that you would speak through her now, and that your heart for people would be um, transferred to us. Give her the words to say. We pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, Mills. Amen. Millie used to kind of be my boss back in the day, so uh, <laughs> amazing. Um, who here hasn't heard of Lighthouse? I don't want really, to like do a kind of mess. Okay, so I'll just do a brief. Uh, so Lighthouse is a church that meets in um, one of the largest homeless shelters in the north of England. Uh, so it was the crypts, uh, it's in the crypt of the church that I used to worship in as a student. So St George is quite a large Anglican resource church. Um, and in the 1930s, which was a time when kind of the nation was on its knees economically, uh, the vicar at the time was a guy called Don Robbins. Basically rocked up and told his congregation that if you want to find me, um, I'm not going to be sat in an office I will be with the most broken hurting people in the city uh, So they literally dragged out all the bodies um, of the rich and famous all their ancestors that were buried in the crypts Dragged in mattresses like definitely wouldn't pass safe like health and safety today um, And actually opened it up for anyone that needed a hot meal and a bed for the night uh, and kind of 80 years on the crypt is is still going but what we found was that they're kind of the I guess the relationship between the Church and the crypts um, it was still very much uh, interconnected. St George's Crypt is still a very Christian organisation in terms of ethos and senior leadership. Um, but actually the kind of the crypt were downstairs meeting the practical needs of the down and out and the church was upstairs meeting the spiritual needs of the middle class. And often there wasn't a lot of crossover between the two. You could worship at St. George's for 40 years and never set foot in the crypt uh, and vice versa. You could be a, a client of the crypt for a long time and have no reason um, to go upstairs. So um, about five years ago now, a six. Yeah. So uh, another quirky vicar moved to Leeds, uh, John Sears, So I think he was here last year doing some stuff on lament and stuff. Uh, and he was supposed to be doing, I think it was children and youth work was what he was um, supposed to be there for. Uh, but made the mistake of praying God, would you bring across my path those most broken by life? And of course, that's a prayer that God loves to answer. And the church is quite strategically placed. So we've got the hospital next door, we've got the police uh, opposite, we've got the courts. uh, You've got, so you've got a lot kind of around us and obviously a huge homeless shelter underneath. Uh, So more and more people started rocking up um, to St. George's and um, which was great. We say, you know, everyone is welcome, but actually how welcome do we make people feel? How um, attentive are we to their needs? How inclusive are we really? If you haven't washed for three weeks, if you can't sit still, if you need a cigarette break every three minutes. Like, how how do our services uh, engage with with people that that are from those walks of life? Uh, And so they ended up going downstairs into the crypt, into an environment that that people were comfortable in. There was a lot of kickoff at the time, kind of that we shouldn't separate the poverty ministry, that the poor should be amongst us, but the poor weren't really amongst us. Uh, So Jesus came to seek and save the lost, let's go to where they're at. Uh, And launched Lighthouse, which is a Christian community for those battered and bruised. Uh, by the storms of life. We've got a congregation about maybe 80 to 100. We've got three main kind of gatherings, one on a Sunday, which meets in the homeless shelter for um, a church service followed by a community meal. Then we've got a discipleship school on Tuesdays. We've got a drop-in on Wednesdays. We're looking at maybe launching a Christian day center um, on Thursdays. Uh, We've probably had about 70 baptisms, Um, A lot of referrals to maybe 65, 70 referrals to residential Christian rehabs. Some people stay for a few days, some people stay for months, years. Um, So it's a very dynamic, active community, but probably of those 80 to 100 that will gather on a Sunday, um, I'd kind of guess that maybe three quarters, the overwhelming majority of those in the room, would be identified by professional services as having um, multiple and complex needs. Be that severe mental health issues or um, histories of childhood and adulthood abuse um, and kind of unresolved trauma, um, which most of our guys and girls self medicate um, through substance misuse as a way of desperately trying to drown out and numb out and forget um, physical, emotional, psychological pain that is often excruciating. Um, and so, we won't go too much into addiction stuff and where there's another seminar on that. But um, mental health and addiction within our context is something that we're constantly juggling and it can leave you in this kind of middle ground when you're trying to engage with services that if you call and you say someone's in crisis, the mental health team, they'll say, well, they're a drug user. Yes, well, it's because of their drugs, you need to call the drug services and you call the drug services and say, well, it's their mental health that's playing up and so you can find yourself in this catch-22. And often when people come off drugs and you have this miraculous moment... So one of our guys, um, just to say, I might say things that are a little bit triggering. Um, so I'm going to speak quite frankly about some of the quite complex um, and very, very tragic um, situations that we encounter. So just be aware of that, you know, with a, if you need a timeout, um, and we're going to try and edit it in such a way that it can be shared online without kind of personal details getting out. When you try and change names, you always forget second time around when you're telling the story. So we'll um, just, we'll try and do it that way. Um, but, yeah, so one of our guys, um, he, we have what we call like the quick, the the kind of miraculous instant miracles, and then the slow burn ones, which tend to be more common. Uh, so a kind of classic example of kind of the addiction, mental health. Um, one of our guys, uh, um, we had, I think it was his fourth four years free from heroin uh, the other week. The first year they, we threw a party for him, which was one year free from heroin. Some people thought it was a free heroin party rather than a free from heroin party, which caused a bit of confusion as to who we were and what we were about. Um, but a really miraculous came to church in real crisis and John prayed for him but also called mental health services but he's an eastern european he's got diagnosed with a personality disorder which basically means that it becomes very very difficult to access mental health services as far as they're concerned it's you kind of you you'll go to his crisis um, and as an eastern european he struggles to access a lot of services um, but he came in decided that he wanted to give his life to jesus john gave him a bible uh, he was living in a car park at the time and he wrote in the front of the bible no more drugs and um, came off heroin called turkey which is miraculous praise the lord uh, but then you have the complexity of he's an eastern european migrant who doesn't qualify for any housing he's a brother in christ what do you do now so he moved in with uh, some of the team and we we're doing a lot of kind of advocacy but then you've got the schizophrenia that you've been using the heroin to drown out the voices for decades and now to live with that on a daily basis, so there's constant. We've had many situations where we've been back in, in um, the Beckland Centre, which is our local um, kind of crisis mental health um, wing. Um, several attempted suicides where you know, we've tried to cut them down off trees and stuff. And so this is, a, this is a kind of an ongoing He knows Jesus, and the drugs are gone, praise the Lord for that. But actually, the mental health is an ongoing struggle. And what does it mean to journey with Jesus long term? Long term through that and affirm his dignity, his worth. Like that guy's a prayer warrior, he's got a gift of healing. If I'm sick, the first guy I'll go to um, for prayer. He has such a gift of faith, and I believe that heaven listens when that guy prays. Uh, and he's full of faith that Jesus will heal him one day. And so we often anoint people with oil at Lighthouse, and Jesus will usually be one of the first to come forward. <laughs> and um, as long as he's got the faith to keep coming forward, I'm going to dig deep and find the faith to keep praying. Um, but also, how do we minister him in such a way that he doesn't feel like he's a failure? Just because he's not well yet and that actually he can he can bring something to our community he um, we've been told by men, multiple professional services that he's a danger to himself and others and should be kept far away um but like i say he's a prayer warrior he teaches so much about the kingdom he would literally if you compliment his jacket he will offer it to you you've got to be careful with your compliments <laughs> um and he he's our he's our barista he makes us coffee serves us faithfully he runs his cafe during our drop-in and for our staff team on thursdays he has such dignity and worth as an image bearer of the king who teaches us so much about who Jesus is and we get to know more of of what God's like through knowing and ministering to him but it's not without its challenges Um, and of course the complexity of the the mental health needs and the unresolved trauma uh, with many of those that we work with means that that kind of that those aren't the only issues that they're struggling with. OK, you're going to struggle with life generally if, if you know, severe mental health and unresolved long-lasting trauma um, is part of your story. Um, and so issues such as homelessness, um, crime, being in and out of the criminal justice system, a majority of our guys are care leavers. And um, my parents are foster carers. And as a young person, I used to really struggle um, when my foster siblings who were five and seven would go off on a Saturday to meet their dad for a picnic full of kind of hopes and excitement but looking forward to all week uh, and then would come back half an hour later with their picnic still intact uh, after another no-show and I used to get so angry um, how could someone put a toxic substance or relationship before their child um, until I came to Lighthouse <laughs> and I met those parents who themselves had endured so much abuse and were in the pit of addiction themselves just trying to just to get through the next day um, and um, and painstakingly I think the thing that Lighthouse has really taught me is how to pray. <laughs> um, I think there's a real anointing over um, these guys and girls um, as a community um, in terms of teaching what it means to be really real and honest with God about where we're at and what our needs are. I think in middle class world it's really, really good at praying for things outside of the room So, you know, the war that's going on here and the situation in government and that kind of stuff. And I believe we're called to be intercessors, I'm I'm pro that. But at Lighthouse, if you ask people to raise their hands if they're struggling with mental health, and we're going to go around and anoint with oil. No shame, every hand will be up. You have people asking um, week in, week out if we can pray for the children that they don't get to see, that God will watch over them and have mercy on them as parents. Um, So a real honesty and realness with God about the things in their lives that aren't as they should be and a desperation for him to come and meet them in their point of need. So, um, I think the thing that I guess growing up in a foster family and ministering in a community like Lighthouse has taught me, which isn't kind of any way new, but I guess it brought it to home, is that the pain of severe mental health issues and long-lasting trauma, it doesn't just affect the individual suffering, it affects all those around them. Um, And it's significant, it's long-lasting, it's often multi-generational. So it's passed down from one to the other, one to the other, one to the other. Um, But I do believe with all my heart that um, healing and restoration is possible. And I believe the church has a unique gift and and role to play in in dealing with those who are shunned and rejected by most of society. Um, Through the power of the spirit, I absolutely believe that our God is a God who heals. Um, But also through informed, loving community who are compassionate and consistent and committed to the long term and appropriate professional help where required. There's no shame in that. Um, so healing and restoration, I believe it is fully possible, um, but perhaps we don't always see it on uh, this side of heaven. And that's a constant challenge, right? Because we worship a God who, who came to seek and to save the lost, um, who taught us to pray that it might be on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's that constant battle where actually the, the, the whole like now and the not yet thing, where I'm, I'm convinced that it's not gonna look like this in heaven. So I'm not going to settle for it now, I want to keep praying, but actually what does it mean to just be a good friend and long-term companion to in the here and now. Um, So that's a little bit of of our ministry context. Um, Millie was the first, second intern. Um, Yeah. Um, but I'm just interested as to, as to why you guys are here, um, like what was it that drew you to this seminar and maybe we could just kind of gather in groups, is it something you've experienced personally, um, is it something within someone that you know, um, it's not something we talk about very much, but actually what, what, why are you here, what are you hoping to learn, what has what, kind of fueled that interest. So if we can just take a few minutes and then um, we'll continue, is that alright? Um, so in terms of like the general outline, um, so we're gonna begin by looking at what trauma and mental health is. And it's worth saying like, I'm not a trauma or mental health expert um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but um, there's excellent kind of mental health first aid courses and trauma-informed care courses that you can go on. That's not what this is. We're not looking at how to kind of diagnose or set up a treatment plan or kind of counsel people who are going through this stuff. But I think if you can understand it, then you're in a better place to love those who are going through it. So we will look at a bit at that. Um, so I'll kind of do kind of first kind of upfront teaching will be kind of this bit. And then we'll take a break and I'm going to interview Millie and we'll kind of process together some of the stuff that we saw, some of the stuff that is ongoing, what we learned from it, what we do differently um, how it's kind of impacted the way that we, we see God and the way that we follow Jesus. So and then we'll take some questions at the end. Um, does that sound all right? Great. Um, and I think a helpful uh, thing to begin with is, is just like, what, what do we have to offer those who are, who are suffering in this way? If we're not psychiatrists, like what, what does the church have to offer? Um, and unfortunately, my, my husband led a session earlier on race and reconciliation. He spoke a lot about looking back and actually recognising what's gone before in order to move forward and what does repentance look like. I think it's worth recognising that actually within, you know, the area of of trauma and mental health. Historically the church, um, well society at large, but the church has been symptomatic of that, hasn't had a lot to offer um, those who are struggling with severe mental health issues or symptoms of of trauma. Uh, We've been pretty short-sighted in our response. I think a lot of that, and I see it myself, is we have the tendency of um, viewing other people's experiences and judging their experiences through our own lens of experience, um, assuming that you know their behavior is a plea for attention or um, their symptoms are merely indicators that they're lazy, selfish, self-absorbed, undisciplined, failing to trust God, or have some sort of unhidden, uh, hidden, unconfessed sin. Um, I think this is particularly true of mental illness. Um, I think we fear it, uh, we, we don't understand it, it's hard to get our heads around, a lot more difficult to get your head around depression than it is a broken leg, um, and um, so we can often I think fall into the trap of blaming people for their problems, and in so doing shame in the midst of silence. Um, perhaps we tell them to, to go away and to come back when they're cured, we just offload them to the psychiatrists and come back when you're not so disruptive and demanding. Um, uh, Or we try and cure them ourselves um, through spiritual practices, uh, like Bible reading and prayer, which of course are incredibly powerful, not to belittle that in any way. What we have to offer is unique, Um, but alone Bible reading and prayer aren't necessarily going to be enough if something is broken in the brain and medical intervention is required. Um, So at Lighthouse, as I said, we often anoint and we we pray for people who are struggling with their mental health. Um, We'll pray deliverance. Style prayers, um, kind of pastoral,ly sensitive ones, uh, Anglican uh, ones. um, (laughs) We've got to be careful. We'll we'll pick on up on that because actually, deliverance is very interesting. Once you're a priest, very interesting. Um, So, so, but so, we'll pray for people. We'll pray that actually the chaos will go, the anything not of Jesus. Would you be gone in Jesus' name? Darkness go. Voices, we silence every voice that is not the voice of Jesus. But we'll also encourage them to keep taking their medication unless otherwise advised by a medical professional, and if they're not taking medication, do what's required, accompany them to the appointment, get that referral uh, where needed. The same way that we pray for anyone in our community who's struggling with cancer, we pray that God heals it, that the cancer will go in Jesus' name, but we're not going to tell them to stop attending chemotherapy. Um, You know, you you hold the two. And I think that's kind of a no-brainer when it comes to physical health, but with mental health, it's like we all lose our heads a little bit. and can resort to cliche, oversimplified, or exclusively spiritualized answers, um, or unhelpful avo- advice. Um, and sooner or later, I can definitely track this in my own story. Um, is what can tend to happen. I think where this is where the hopelessness comes in. Is that we realise that we can't, we can't fix the person. <clears throat> our power prayers, our self-help strategies aren't working uh, with the speed and the efficacy that we were hoping they would. Um, and that can hit our ego. It can make us feel inadequate, um, and I think that is because as humans we, we carry this major burden of self-reliance. <clears throat> Particularly true of those of us that are in leadership positions, I would suggest. Um, this idea that if we can diagnose the problem, then we can fix the problem. Um, and so when we find ourselves dealing with people that have major issues, uh, resulting from lasting, perhaps unresolved trauma or severe mental health issues, um, we realise we can't solve the problem. Uh, so it must be because they're not following our advice right so we blame the person and um, we can feel inadequate in dealing with them and so we'd rather just not have to and it becomes a bit of a relief when they stop showing up at small group or our main sunday services um, and of course i'm aware these are huge generalizations and sweeping statements i'm sure you guys are much more holy in the way that you um, view these things than i do um, but i think they do capture some of that internal struggle um that, that i know I often face when i encounter someone who is deeply deeply broken and for whom it, it bar a miracle of God, there will be no quick fixes for this, it's a long-term uh, commitment. And I think um, a story in the Gospels, the, the story of the garrison Demoniac in the Gospels, I think kind of captures and demonstrates this pretty well. So you've got um, a guy, or in one Gospel account, two guys, who uh overcome um, with darkness, is, is on the inside of them. And... Um, and we, we love, we, so at Lighthouse we often um, act out um, Bible passages. A lot of our guys maybe struggle to, to read or English isn't their first language and so we dramatise a lot of passages, which I would recommend in any church setting. Like I don't think the Bible is written to be read from like BBC English, uh, Anglican lectionary. Like actually the scriptures are alive with passion and drama um, and so it's great to act them out. And our guys love it, the story, because essentially you've got a self armour. Um, who's living in a graveyard? Again, well, some say, like, who has ever spent a night in a graveyard? And like a third of the hands in the room will go up. Um, so it's something we can powerfully identify with. And actually, we were acting out not so long ago. And one of the guys who kind of was carrying these chains said, Sounds like he's got a personality disorder. I've got one of those. I can d-. And it was, he acts out remarkably. Um, but and he's living amongst the tombs the community they just don't know what to do with him and so they chain him up and he's kept out of sight and out of mind and going back to the historical thing up until relatively recently that's what we've done um, with the mentally ill and the the traumatized in our communities we, we've locked them up um, we've chained them up um, some mental signs were actually used as human zoos people come and pay a fee to watch and to look at the people who are thrashing about in their chains um, i think we need to acknowledge that um, the dehumanizing Aspect of mental health and how we, as a culture and society, have contributed to that. Um, and, um, there but I think that, so. It's, Go back to the story. Um, but I think the thing that we can learn from Jesus' encounter with the Garrison demoniac um, is that, of course, you know, Jesus heals the guy. That's, well, that's what we tend to focus. The miracle of the story is that Jesus heals the guy. The demons go, uh, they're cast into the pigs, and the pigs run into the water, and there's a big hoo ha from the uh, guys that were looking after the pigs, and the townspeople ask Jesus to leave, and that's what we focus on in the passage. And I believe that is a miracle. Praise the Lord for that. Um, but I think what strikes me about this passage is the fact that Jesus engages with the guy. Uh, culturally, that's not what you do. Um, he, w- he was away from society for a reason, but Jesus, he seeks him out. He doesn't shrink back from him in fear or judgment. He moves towards him in compassion and empathy. And I think those are the real miracles, right? That's what the body of, the, of Christ needs to be about on a day, actually. How, where other people are shrinking back in fear or judgment, how can we move closer uh, in compassion and empathy? Um, not with hopium, but with hope filled realism. Um, And the Gerasene demoniacs, they they cry out, Jesus, Son of God, what do you have to do with us? What do you have to do with us? And isn't that the question that everyone who's struggling with their mental health is asking of God? What do you have for us? Anything? And of course, I look into the church and if the church is silent, then that's what they hear from God. Um, You're on your own but the response should of course when we see if we if we're basing our interaction as christians and as church leaders on on jesus not on kind of the structures around us but actually on what we see in the scriptures and the answer should be everything jesus moves towards them uh, and we worship a god who is revealed most clearly in jesus the one who came to seek and to save the lost who made a beeline for the hurting during his short time here on earth and who reminded religious people like you and me that it's not the healthy who need a doctor it's the sick um, and it's for such disease that he came So we're going to spend a bit of time thinking and reflecting on how the church can be the church to look and love more like Jesus with those struggling with their mental health. Is this, oh, it's working. Um, But before we do that, Um, I just want to spend some time looking specifically at trauma. So trauma and mental health are are very interconnected often. Um, Oftentimes those who have experienced trauma will struggle with their mental health or when you're ministering to someone uh, who has got significant mental health needs, you might discover some some kind of hidden, unresolved trauma. Um, But it is kind of in and of itself something separate that um, I think, again, if we can understand, um, we're we're better placed to minister to. Um, So to begin, what is trauma? Do I tap Mills? What do I do? Uh, so trauma is an event or series of events or a set of circumstances in which a person feels physically or emotionally harmed a level that is greater than their capacity to cope. As a result of the event or events or circumstances have lasting negative effects on a person's functioning and overall well-being. effects that can last a lifetime. Um, at the time of the traumatic events or circumstances, the person experiencing the trauma has intense feelings of fear, horror, vulnerability, helplessness, and loss of control. It's often referred to as the affliction of the powerless. Um, and victims typically respond to this overwhelming uh, sense of, of powerlessness that is beyond their capacity um, to, to, to process uh, by going into the survival mode of fighting. So becoming combative, aggressive, uh, fighting for their survival, uh, fleeing, so withdrawing physically or emotionally from the situation, or freezing, uh, so numbing, emotional deadness, uh, it's too painful to feel so it's better just not to feel at all. So I remember being sat in um, the back of our chapel as uh, so we've got kind of a main dining room where we hold our services and we've got a small chapel that will take people in for kind of more pastoral conversations or prayer and I was sat with one of our girls um, and uh, a prison chaplain who is one of our pastors and she was uh, about to head off for rehab and she was terrified um, but not of the kind of the excruciating physical withdrawal symptoms of coming off the drink and the drugs but of having to remember and to feel again uh, and for her that was the most terrifying thing about she having to deal and process the memories um, of what had happened to her and she did she went off to rehab and she did remarkably well but left too soon and the trauma remained unresolved and relapsed back into violence and chaos and um, accidentally ended up killing her partner outside of church in one of our evening services uh, and six months later um, died herself of suspected overdose. So that was a numbing, unresolved trauma that proved ultimately fatal for her and for her partner, who I'm sure had a a fair amount of uh, unresolved trauma himself. But how trauma affects a person for the rest of their life uh, depends on a whole host of factors, um, including biological makeup, uh, personality, socioeconomic status, and i think this one is key the extent to which people have loving families and social networks around them that is one of the major defining actually will, will they survive or will they not it's where they have loving supportive communities around them um, and often when when we kind of turn up in court with our guys um that's the question that they're asking and um, the judge is asking is actually, do we send them back to prison or do we allow them to continue to be supportive? If we can provide evidence that they're in a loving, supportive community, then more often than not, they, they'll be more lenient and that they'll try and keep them with us rather than going back into the system that has been so destructive um, for so long in their lives. Um, so that's a unique gift that the church has to offer, loving, loving community and social networks. Um, and although the long-term effects of trauma varies from person to person, um, what is quite kind of consistent in those that have, have suffered trauma is encountering um, events that will remind them of trauma in the past and will re-traumatise them, um, similar to what I, I mentioned with my friend earlier, who's a soldier, uh, causing them to react in the same ways that they did when the, trauma, um, when the traumatic events first occurred. Um, so a kind of hypothetical example that you might encounter in your parish might be that you've got Bob uh, who you're aware has come from um, a difficult background but he's engaging well and um, wants to be involved and so he's on the setup team, team in a church plant um, so he has to arrive half an hour early to, to help set up and he's even he's kind of one of the leaders of this team but Bob keeps consistently arriving 20 minutes late uh, so you could call him aside and you have a conversation challenging his behaviour. And the response is absolutely explosive. He kicks off, he throws the chairs, he storms out. Um, And to you, that is just a totally irrational, um, disproportionate response to to your challenge. Um, But if Bob grew up in a family with an alcoholic father, who told him that he was never good enough and used to come home from the pub beating him black and blue every night because he didn't wash the dishes right, because he um, was too noisy when he came in, all those different things. Then actually he's gone he's gone into fight mode uh, and so it's not excusing you don't sin is sin we don't excuse people's behavior but actually your pastoral response might be different um, which is just kicking off the team and you know safeguarding he's no longer allowed in the building actually what does an appropriate way you're addressing the sin um, we, don't, we don't let people off the hook but actually how do we come alongside them and help them move towards repentance in a way that's understanding where they've come from i think turning around is all about direction you've got to understand why people were facing first time around before they can turn around appropriately right and um, so, uh, and I think another thing, I don't know which ones I've got slides for and which not. Which one did I say? Five yeah, five flower, freeze. Okay, let's go back. Um, another thing which um, I think is helpful for anyone, particularly church uh, leaders, um, is that because many people have experienced trauma, experience at the hands of someone close to them, so someone who should be a caregiver, so a parent. Um, an uncle or an aunt, someone who should be in a protective caregiving role. Um, and because of, of that, getting close to new people who are fulfilling that caregiving role pastorally can be very terrifying. And so once some people who've experienced trauma kind of enter a certain level of relational intimacy, you'll get the fight, flight or free, uh, of So you you can often find them withdrawing and they just stop answering calls or they stop turning up at things and it can be very confusing for you. Um, But but sometimes that is worth exploring actually, is there some unresolved trauma here that's causing when they get to a degree of intimacy, particularly if you can see it in numerous relationships, then actually, okay, maybe this is something that we need to be praying into um, around. Um, So another one, the fight, flight or freeze. so, the freeze is interesting. So, that is kind of a surrender approach, so where you just deaden yourself. And that is why often people who have been abused in childhood will go on to be re abused um, because their, their kind of go to response in traumatic situations is just to surrender and to give in to whatever dominant force there is. Um, so, that's, those are the people that we do particularly aware of they're particularly likely to be exploited they're particularly likely to find themselves in situations again so to just to be aware of that that, that is kind of how those cycles can can happen when freeze is your is your go-to um, trauma traumatic response um, uh, another thing so trauma victims tend to have um they call them symptoms rather than memories um, so these are some of the symptoms um, we'll send out the slides and stuff So, hopelessness, nightmares, flashbacks, intrusive memories, starter response, shame, self-hatred, panic attacks, emotionally being very overwhelmed, uh, chronic pain, headaches, eating disorders, substance abuse, self-destructive behaviours, little or no memories, hypervigilance, so constantly on high alert, uh, disassociation, depression, irritability, loss of interest, numbing, insomnia, decreased concentration, um, and yeah, hopelessness. Um, so essentially what you have is three main categories uh, of symptoms. So you have hypervigilance, so a persistent expectation of danger or of the event happening again. So there's a number of people that are just constantly, within an like, constantly on high alert, just constantly. Um, they startle easily, react irritably, sleep badly, loss of trust. Uh, so one of our girls, so I'm, I'm dumping a lot of stuff, so if you kind of need to, to pause, um, one of our girls can't go anywhere on her own, so she was, um, very badly uh, sexually abused as a child by her father. And as a result, um, trauma can impact your, your brain biologically post. So um, she she's mentally been told by doctors that mentally she'll never exceed that of a 12-year-old um, because of kind of the impact of that of that early trauma. And she won't go anywhere on her own just for fear. She knows that he's now been released just for fear that she might see him again. And what would stop him doing it again? She's now married, she's got, but that, that is a constant. And so as a community, what does it mean to gradually build her trust and grow her trust and increase her independence, but also be aware of where she's come from and not be frustrated um, when she's having a panic attack after kind of leaving and whoever was supposed to meet her wasn't there. And so hypervigilance is one. Um, second is intrusive memories and flashbacks, um, which is kind of that, the classic PTSD symptom that we're aware of, that kind of that invasion of that memory. Um, as if it's happening now Uh, and it's often triggered by small reminders so um, usually it's just an image people can't always put words so it's an image that just invades or maybe a smell that reminds them and suddenly that they're back where they were and all of their symptoms um, of kind of high heart rate all of that is all kicking in Uh, and it becomes very difficult to, to kind of ground well the key, the key in that point is to try and ground them, to remind them of where they are. Tell me about the room around me. Focus on your breathing. Actually, trying to ground them in the present when they've hit a traumatic, um, intrusive memory, um, and then the numbing. So quite a few of those kind of fit into the numbing. So that's where a lot of the kind of substance abuse, um, disassociation, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so it's. Um, so I'll pick up on it in a kind of a case study later. So it's basically multiple where the trauma is so much and I it's otherwise a multiple personality and um, so where the trauma is actually 90% of those who struggle with disassociation are, are victims of trauma and it's basically where your personality just splits and you totally disassociate so you're there but you're not there Um so trying to bring all those pieces of, of the personality back together um, but we'll touch on that because it's a particularly interesting um, yeah so that's, the, that's, that's what we're up against. Um, but how, how are we positioned to respond? Um, are people doing okay? Yeah? Um, so um, so how do we respond? Um, I think with a, a heck of a lot of love. <laughs> um, a lot of understanding, a lot of grace. Um, safe places. Um, and I think being good listeners who are willing to, to enter into the story, if they're willing to share it, um, not to fix or solve it or explain it away um, though sometimes there's a place for that if they want to know a kind of a theological reflection on it but I think there's something just to listen and validate the pain and to mourn those losses with them I think is very a very powerful um, tool that we have as Christians actually to listen because that humanizes um, I think that process of being listened to and having your story told particularly for abuse victims who are often silenced um, actually having someone listen and validate that pain and mourn those losses with you can be incredibly healing i think it doesn't fix everything by any stretch of the imagination but i think it is healing um, and for trauma victims often the world is viewed as a very dangerous place um, and so i think if we can provide safe and loving patient understanding non-judgmental compassionate communities and that is incredibly healing and it's something that doctors and psychiatrists can't offer. And that's kind of been a journey that we've been on as a community, recognising the, the power of just having, if we can increase as much contact time as we can, and this is possible for every ministry, but as much contact time where people are safe and they are loved and they can just, the hypervigilance can start to, um, to settle a little bit, then that is, that's remarkable. Um, for some people, recovery doesn't mean, you know, that they're going to be able to hold down a full-time job. But actually, how can you live a life of worth and value and dignity? Um, and so one of our girls, we had trauma training as a team and it was actually really helpful when she spoke about this dangerous, the world being a dangerous place and cultivating safe spaces. We realised that one of our ladies who's got autism and a personality disorder, um, she will be, she's difficult, she's, she's beautiful, she's wonderful, but she's been banned from pretty much every um, organization institution public space in the city and um, social workers that so were now paid and um, contracted to work with her um, and provide care support that no one else is prepared to to provide uh, but they're recognizing that it seems to only be the church that has the grace of God to keep taking this woman back and keep forgiving her um, and working with her on her behavior and different things and um, but with this lady in particular often when you're coming to the end of an activity that's when your kickoff will really start to happen and actually it became quite comforting to realize that it's because she's aware that this is a safe space and that's an affirmation of what we're doing but it doesn't take away the danger of the world but it's that awareness i'm about to enter into a world that is dangerous um, where because of her own behavior she's often in you know very dangerous situations because the kind of uh, places and confrontations she can get herself into um, but i think if we can create safe loving communities that is incredibly healing uh, and in terms of spiritual restoration um, and healing people's experience particularly those who have been um, who haven't been protected or cared for but instead been abused and violated or simply neglected and um, then i think that can have a huge impact well i know that can have a huge impact in terms of how you see yourself and how you see god um, and so at lighthouse we take any opportunity that we can to affirm the nature and the heart of god so in prayer time we'll constantly for every prayer god we thank you that you are good that you are not a whack-a-mole god that you're not looking for any excuse excuse just to beat us with a stick we thank you that you're not an absent landlord, you're not distant and disinterested. We thank you that you are um, someone who draws close, who is the, the Father of all comfort, the God of all compassion, and just constantly affirming uh, the nature and the heart of God. Affirmatory is about who he is and what he does, and something which um, John often does. Um, he's been getting me to do in like public and staff prayer meetings in middle class, which is a bit more awkward. Um, but he calls it holy eyeballing, where you just eyeball someone and just speak truth over them. Uh, so I'll pick on people. Um, you are the daughter that the father always wanted. His back is for you. He is for you, not against you. And even now he is singing songs of deliverance, songs of freedom and truth over you. You are the son the father always wanted. He delights in you. He's always loved you. He loves you now, he loved you then. He's never gonna stop loving you. And nothing, no diagnosis. No trauma, nothing that's been done to you can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He's never gonna leave you. And just actually take to just speak truth, go around the room and we'll just speak truth, eyeball people. It's awkward we're British, we don't like it. But I, and just speak truth. Because when you've been told that you're nothing but her, uh, you're just like your uncle so-and-so, actually have people that are regularly just affirming and speaking truth and on the dissociative stuff. Um, so there's been a church that I've got in contact with this. They've been in supporting a lady since 1993. Um, who was raised in a satanic cult um, and as a result of lasting trauma and all sorts of things that happened to her within that um, has got this disassociative, so multiple split personalities and for years did decades of deliverance prayers, um, which in some ways I think were, I absolutely believe there's room the deliverance and, and mental health I think there's definitely things that they go hand-in-hand hand there, but it can, it can be quite damaging, actually, if the voice doesn't go away, then does that mean I've got a demon? Like, how, how we do that needs to be pastorally sensitive, I believe. Um, but um, they came across something called Heart for Truth, which is another lady who had dissociative disorder, who's now healed, um, and the, the premise of that is that you just surround them with people who speak truth over them, so every single day they have interaction with someone, whether it's a phone call, whether it's a coffee, who is affirming truth. And gradually, when you're being hit with truth of who you are, you believe you're unlovable, but everyone around you, then actually it starts to bring back all these split personalities and you can become whole. You can, you can live with yourself. Um, and so they, they're kind of trying to grow their team. And, um, but I just thought, that is one church, okay, a small church, who just committed since 1993. They're going to get around, and this lady is, she's not an easy person to be with because she's constantly, you know, saying all sorts of horrible things about herself. Um, and can be highly manipulative and all sorts of things and it's worth kind of we'll chat about that I'm sure in question times regarding the manipulation and the blaming and all of that can go with mental health but that I, I was humbled by that of just a small loving community that's surrounding women with truth um, who's had such trauma um, so um, just aware of time yeah, so I guess the final thing is that if you are ministering to someone who obviously has multiple and severe complex trauma, then do refer them. Like absolutely always refer where you can, always refer. Um and um but I don't think it's a case of we refer them and then that's it, that's our job done, come back when you're healed, actually. Navigating those systems and those appointments can be, tr- can be tricky, so actually how can we get around you and support you in that? Um, and it's, you know, it's not a okay, case to send them off to the professionals and come back when you're fixed, because the reality is some people will never be fully fixed this side of eternity. Um, but we need to be committed to long-term sustainable um, loving care. Um, actually, I, I believe Jesus could come back and everyone will get healed. Um, but, but we need to simultaneously, I think, also be aware of our own limitations. Um, vicarious trauma is real, um, you can pick up on it, it's, it's contagious. Um, so, actually, how, how are you offloading that? Who are you going to? And when are you in too deep? And being aware of that uh, and knowing, having kind of an action plan of how to respond. Um, so, that's a bit on trauma. It took a bit longer than I thought, but we'll kind of whistle through mental health <laughs> and then we'll have um, some kind of questions and stuff. Um, so, regarding mental health, which again is interconnected, um, should we actually, let's just do a brain check. And take 30 seconds, talk to the person next to you, how you feeling, how you doing, We'll come back in. Yeah. Um, so, we're just going to touch on mental health, and then we'll, we'll take a proper break, and we'll have time to kind of um, chat things through and stuff. Um, so, but let's yeah look at mental health. So, what is mental health? Um, so it's there's often been a, a kind of lack of clarity amongst the church, and still is, um, regarding what mental health is. Some see it in purely spiritual terms. I'm not, outruling that by any uh, stretch of imagination. Um, some people see that you know people who are struggling with their mental health need to pray more. That it's a result of sin. Um, like I said, I wouldn't be against ruling out spiritual roots. Um, I would do that for physical conditions as well. That actually. Um, My aunt does a lot of ministry in uh, India and um, a lot of arthritis for the women that she was praying with would go as they were praying for forgiveness. So I think there's a lot of spiritual, I think the spiritual and the the physical are very much intertwined. but I think we need more than just spiritual um, to, to draw from in our ministry manuals when we're dealing with this kind of stuff. We need a bit more of a robust, uh, informed thinking uh, around these issues. And so what is mental health? Medically speaking, it's a condition that results in the disruption of a person's thoughts, moods, behaviours, and ability to relate to others that's severe enough that they require some kind of intervention or treatment, or they're not going to be able to function effectively. Um, so, and a helpful way of understanding it is through the to stress model. Um, so, which is um, basically the understanding that we're all born with certain vulnerabilities or susceptibilities um, all types of, for all types of biological issues. You know, you might have diabetes runs in your family line or heart conditions or different things. Um, so we all have these biological vulnerabilities. And then on top of that, there are environmental factors after birth uh, that can alter us biologically, like trauma, as I mentioned about um my friend who has who abused a child and so is at 12 years old, so that's her mental capacity has been, at least by doctors, not in Jesus' uh, name, but has been, has been limited. Uh, so there's biological um, heritable acts aspects of our vulnerabilities uh, So individuals with a first-degree relative so a parent or sibling um, with a mental illness are much more likely to have that illness as a result it's not a guarantee so don't be freaking out um, but it's if, if you've got it in your family line if schizophrenia runs in your family line then you've got a biological vulnerability um, in that regard and then if there is um, kind of damage that is done as, a, as an infant as a young child with regard to trauma then that's going to increase your vulnerability um, so we all have particular areas where we're more vulnerable and susceptible than others. Uh, and then, of course, what happens is life and the stresses of life draw out those vulnerabilities. Um, so if you have, um, for example, high vulnerability biologically um, to schizophrenia, so say your mother has schizophrenia, um, so that vulnerability is in your biological makeup, then you're going to need fewer stresses in life to draw that out um, so than someone who has a very low... Susceptibility in that area. They're going to need much higher stresses in life to draw that out. So the diathesis-stress model kind of shows that how kind of high vulnerability means low stresses are required, and low vulnerability means high stresses are required. Um, and I think that I find quite helpful in that it shows um, you have basically got this very complex interaction of genetic vulnerabilities, exposure to trauma at an early age, and later stresses in life. Um, and the onset for most mental illnesses is kind of late teens, early adulthood, but not for all. Um, And so I guess the key takeaway here for me, as someone who ministers within this context, is just a recognition that it's flipping complex. Um, In most cases it's not something that someone decided to do, so it's not not something they can decide to undo. Um, And it didn't necessarily happen just because they weren't reading their Bible enough, or didn't have enough faith. Uh, there's an aspect of biological vulnerabilities potentially aggravated by early trauma and stresses within life that people often have little, if any, control over. And that's before you even bring into the spiritual dimension, which we'll, I'm sure will come up in question time. Um, and I think that's that's really helpful to remember, particularly as I mentioned, earlier, that we have this tendency to judge people through our own lens of experience and kind of write them off as lazy or undisciplined or this or that, um, if that's not been your personal experience. Um, So how common is it? Um, So more than you would think. Uh, So one in 17 suffer from um, chronic mental health issues. So depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, personality disorders. But one in four have less serious mental health issues. I'm sure they feel pretty serious for those who are are suffering. So that's kind of addictions, phobias that aren't considered by academics serious, um, but are nonetheless significant mental health conditions. Um, According to um, uh, World Health Data, uh, one in four families have a mentally ill loved one that they are supporting. And again, the knock-on impact, the stress that that puts on, on a family. Conflict is much higher. Um, you've got all sorts of, of, of things that are attached to that. They're much. Um, all the kind of studies and polls show that they're, they're less likely to attend church regularly, not just the person, but yeah. These are Western society. Or these are Western. <laughs> so these are particularly drawn, um, so particularly from the States, but I think the similarities were, were very similar. But I find that the one in four is global world health. Which is interesting because I think I definitely kind of believe that it's it's a Western disease, but actually schizophrenia, depression—it appears all over the globe. It doesn't, um, but it often has different names. Um, But actually, it is—it is a global thing. It doesn't, um, yeah, it appears everywhere. But those are Western statistics, Um, and sadly. despite how frequent it is and um, that's more kind of than people that be struggling with diabetes or heart conditions or anything in your in your congregation but often the experience of those um, suffering and their families is, is real isolation. Um, mental illness is often referred to as the no casserole dish um, because you're on your own um, you know any, anything else we get a rota going but actually when it comes to mental illness um, people don't know how to respond and so they don't do anything um, they don't know what to say so they don't say anything and of course our silence says it all. Um, so, I think I've skipped a bit, um, maybe that is, okay, and so in terms of, great we are going to get through this in time, um, so in terms of what can we do then, what is the, the response of the church, um, I think a huge thing is just to get informed, so the fact that you guys are here today is, is really helpful. Um, if you don't know what to do, um, this is my list, yeah, how to respond. Um, no one's asking or expecting any church leader um, to be an expert on this stuff, but reading up on it won't help, won't hurt at all. Um, enrolling on a mental health first aid course, has anyone done one of those? Highly recommend, helpful, yeah. Um, it just doesn't do us any harm if, when you think of actually 1 in 17 or 1 in 4, that is a significant kind of amount of, of the population. I think it's 450 million worldwide um, are those who are suffering. Yeah, I did miss a Sorry, I missed a page. Here we go. Um, so 450 million glo- people globally um, are struggling with their mental health. So that's the third largest. If that was a nation, that'd be the third largest nation um, on planet Earth. Um, so this is a this is a huge mission field uh, in many senses, and um, because people are desperate, they're desperate for people to come alongside and to speak hope and truth into their situations. So it's a it's a ripe harvest in that sense. Um, another thing that before we get to how we respond. Um, People in psychological distress, studies have shown, are much more likely to approach a clergyman than they are a mental health professional um, in their point of crisis. Um, Again, that's coming from the States, but I think it would be similar. So people are going to their pastors before they're going to mental health professionals. Um, And largely, it's an access issue. So if you kind of rock up in a state of real distress, And maybe you're not at immediate harm to yourself or others, but your family would deem you're in serious distress. Um, Then, and you call a psychiatrist, you say, "I'm a brand new patient who's presenting in distress. I need a referral. Six to eight weeks minimum is your waiting list." but you know, Vicar George can see on Monday at two for a coffee. So it's an access issue. So we can either see this as a real indictment on the mental health uh, situation, uh, which I believe it is. Uh, we regularly, when we're praying for people's mental health, but also praying at Lighthouse for the structures and systems in, the, um, in, in our city that is supposed to be coming alongside people. But we can also see this as a great opportunity that God is sending them to the church first. He's sending the most broken, hurting people to us. Um, so what do we do? We need to respond effectively. Um, so and i think what we do how we respond is like jesus does with the garrison demoniac we engage we draw close um we don't shun judge or reject someone because they're suffering um so first thing i think is we can talk about it um one of the ways the key ways that we engage is just by by kind of there's so much stigma and silencing isn't there and shame around it but actually to talk about it to to mention it in sermons to have it on your agenda at prayer meetings to get people that are sharing testimonies not necessarily that they've been healed but actually this is how i'm being faithful to jesus in the midst depression or anxiety uh, and actually creating room for that to be discussed when one in four families in your congregation are likely supporting someone who's struggling and one in 17 in your congregation have got chronic mental health issues Um, let's talk about it let's not silence and shame them in a corner Uh, and just move in the opposite spirit create an atmosphere of acceptance where mental health is as acknowledged and um, spoken about because I think one of the things anyone loves to do is to you know, convince us that we're, on, that we're on our own, that no one cares and no one's coming. Uh, so I think if we can talk about it and bring it into the open, then there's um, real hope. Um, so whether that's prayer triplets or kind of WhatsApp groups, getting people around those who are suffering and willing to talk about it and pray about it and come alongside, I think that's really helpful. Um, either get informed? Um, thirdly, I think be willing to... Um, be practical, so be willing to get to know and help navigate the system. Um, so benefits, um, mental health provision services, child protection, they're all incredibly complex systems and structures, um, daunting for, for any of us. Um, but very difficult for somebody struggling with their mental health to navigate. If you're struggling with daily life, to be able to navigate all those appointments and systems and structures can be very overwhelming and can often lead to a whole heaps actually. So one of our guys who was um, baptised on Sunday, um, remarkable guy, incredible brain, speaks 11 languages, um, grew up in kind of an inner city school, so he speaks Urdu, speaks Japanese, Chinese, ancient Hebrew. Um, and he's just a remarkable guy but suffers real extreme anxiety he was raised a jehovah's witness and there's a whole bunch of stuff attached to that and so we will sit with him we'll discuss the trinity which is kind of a a real contentious issue given his background we will pray for him and we'll pray for healing we'll pray for peace um, but one of our uh, retired volunteers sat with him for three hours last week after Bible study to go through all his letters because he'd not been answering them, he'd not been opening them, he'd not been calling the numbers he needed to call and so he's facing eviction. It's so actually be practical, let's get alongside with the practical stuff of life um, that can be really challenging um, when you're struggling with your mental health. Um, I think another one is knowing people's rights and being prepared to fight for them, I think is really key. Um, so Lighthouse has become probably more specialised in this, um, un, kind of wasn't what we intended to do or be, um, but we just kind of, as we were coming alongside people that were really struggling to navigate daily life with dignity without acute levels of distress who clearly required adult social care to step in and take some responsibility for providing care support. What would happen is we'd raise it, we'd flag it up, and they'd tell us no, no no duty of care, no responsibility, we'd raise it, we'd flag it up, we'd escalate it, we'd keep escalating it, we'd ask for managers' names, we'd ask for professionals' meetings. Uh, Realising that actually being a Christian doesn't just mean being polite and nice and not causing a problem, sometimes it means really kicking off a stink for the sake of the vulnerable. Um, And as a result of that, we now have three care contracts um, with um, two, two individuals that previously were getting no care support, one that now has a full package, another, the lady I mentioned earlier with autism and personality disorder, so they, they want a full package, but no one will take her um, at present. Um, they want us to do 40 hours, at the moment we're doing 25. Um, and these people that were previously were accessing nothing but actually just learning some trigger words regarding human rights, ability to live with dignity, quoting that in emails, and just really fighting, fighting, fighting. Because um, she's my brother, she, she's my sister in Christ, actually. She, she prays for me. She's, we can't just allow her to keep roaming in this, this existence that is so de- dehumanising. Um, so I think it's, it's good where that is required, to, to, to be willing to actually be, be the bulldog Christian, not just the kind of nice sit back and um, you know drink tea with a social worker Christian. Those social workers are wonderful, praise God for social workers. Um, Another one, quickly before we break, um, these are kind of all interconnected, so draw boundaries and stick to them, um, so that you don't burn dry, um, I think one of, the why are, one of the reasons people are fearful of engaging with those with mental health issues um, is that it can, be incre- it can become all consuming, you can sink with them if you're not careful, um, but actually what they need is for you to be in this for the long run. Um, so it's better i think better to underpromise and over deliver than to overpromise and under deliver and better still is to, to do what you said that you'll do so that there's manageable expectations for everyone um another is to to share the load and communicate so um often with attachment and dependency issues it's not healthy if there's one person that's engaging someone that's got severe trauma issues or um mental health needs that that mean that you know they'll attach and it can become a very unhealthy dynamic of a relationship so being able to share that load where you can with a a small trusted team like the truth team who kind of surround this lady with the dissociative disorder um, and communicate so with a lady with autism um, she can be quite she's manipulative um, at times so if she kicks off with one of us and is incredibly verbally abusive um, then She knows that, you know, we're not going to take her out for coffee as we promised on Tuesday. So she'll call someone else and arrange that on our team. And so she just kind of, she plays us off against each other. We're not aware of what's happened. And so other people are kind of, we're trying to put a consequence in, but someone else is covering. Um, So we started a WhatsApp group where we just say, this is what she did today. This is the consequence, agreed. So no one is taking her out on Tuesday. Uh, And that is a loving way of training her into actually how to behave and how to to manage and live in the community um which comes into sticking to, to standards um which isn't on there um but i don't think that we should just lower and just let people off the hook you know sin is sin and it's not healthy for them or for the community to just allow things to go unaddressed unaddressed unresolved so we have many many sit-down conversations with various individuals with an understanding of where they're coming from um, but actually the autistic lady she needs to know that she cannot speak to people like that she cannot throw coffee cups when she gets cross at the vicar so the police have to be called because he's been assault and bloods everywhere like that that cannot happen on a regular basis so actually how do we lovingly come alongside her we're not going to her thing is that she thinks when she kicks off no one's going to ever want to come near her again but actually we put the boundary in place we come back on Thursday I'm still going to meet with you and we're going to go to that appointment but actually you know that we're not lowering the standards there are consequences for your behavior but it's coming within loving consistent parent as you would with any parenting uh, boundaries Um, and that's what they need and that's what you need in order to survive Um, and I think the other stuff um, we've kind of touched on regarding affirming God's nature and heart um, and coming alongside and getting around people so that's what I have to share let's take a bit of a break then I'm going to come back interview Millie and then we're gonna have questions and answers. That sound alright?